from BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast, is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Bring it Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2 and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking. When we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the wind down tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Nice to see you again. Happy to have you. Uh, We had a ooh, exciting night last night. Oh, Oh my my God. (laughs) <laughs> we went and saw Shang-Chi and we won't talk about it. We won't ruin it for Obviously anybody. Not. But guess what? It's so good. Go see it. It's amazing. Yeah, it's really, really good. There's a couple that we saw recently that I'm very glad we watched before we saw Shang-Chi. Mm-hmm. And if you, I, I don't want to say what they are because I feel like that's in and of itself is spoilery. But if you want a, if you want a pro tip about <laughs> what what should I refresh myself on? Before I go in, then uh, shoot me a message, and I'll I'll just mm, drop you a you couple go. titles. There you go. Okay, okay, that's um, a good idea. But enough about that, because we have a great big long story today. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one's just rich and so full, and it's one of my favorite eras. I'm thinking. Yeah. I mean, in the romanticized version of it, right? Turn of the century explorers, adventurers, pilots, cool travelers. 
uh, you know, rich white people, obviously, <laughs> who thought they owned the world. Mm-hmm. But if you, you know, just kind of romanticize the, the journeys they were on and the cool shit they got to do, uh, this is a pretty cool chapter in history, I think. And this is the story about Dorothy Binney Putnam and her husband, George Putnam. Now, you probably know the other side of their story, which is that George Putnam and Amelia Earhart had an affair and there was a divorce. He married her. And at the time and even throughout most of history, it was generally assumed that George was kind of an asshole and cheated on his wife with Amelia Earhart. They left her in the dust and went off and enjoyed their lives together. But in fact, there's a lot more to the story than that. And that's what we're here to explore today. Yeah. So it's a rich episode, a lot of really cool characters and settings, and uh, just a total twist on the history that we sort of already had, and I think the assumptions that we already had about these people. So, I don't know, I say we jump right in. Yeah, let's do it. Hey there, friends, come listen well. Eli and Diana got some stories to tell. There's no matchmaking or romantic tips. It's just about ridiculous relationships. A lover might be any type of person at all. An abstract concept or a concrete wall. But if there's a story worth a second glance, we'll put it in a show, Ridiculous Romance. A production of iHeartRadio. So I'll start off at the top and just go ahead and source this. Most of this information came from a book called Whistled Like a Bird, The Untold Story of Dorothy Putnam, George Putnam, and Amelia Earhart. It was published in 1997, and it was written by Sally Putnam Chapman, who's Dorothy and George's granddaughter. Now, Sally totally idolized her grandmother, Dorothy, and just thought she was the coolest person in the world. She really loved her, and she always kind of wanted to tell her story. Dorothy in public was a pretty private person and didn't really say a lot about herself to the press or anybody like that during any of these events. But when she was 82 years old in 1970, she gave all of her diaries to her granddaughter and basically said, here you go. I I know you really (laughs) care about my life and you want to tell my story. And here it is. And it was 10 three by five leather bound books. And it was detailed information, sometimes daily entries from 1907 to 1961. Sally says folded into all the pages, there was postcards and letters and four-leaf clovers and handwritten notes and faded photographs and just all this very cool, like, you know, uh, Dr. Henry Jones's diary, you know, for the Holy Grail. Like, oh, I love those little books. I know. Dorothy gave Sally all these journals. And in 1996, she published this book that was a detailed account of her life, um, her whole life. And I would say the first half of that book is this story, which is her her marriage and divorce uh, with George Putnam. George Putnam, he's typically portrayed as a dour and insensitive, career-driven man. But Sally writes differently. She remembers him as a magical storyteller, she says. And he took her outdoors and taught her to fish and showed her adventures. She says George was very much in love with Dorothy and that contrary to popular belief, Amelia did not steal him away from her. Hmm. So let's talk about Dorothy. Yeah. Dorothy Putnam was born, Dorothy Binney, on July 20th, 1888, to her parents, Alice Stead Binney, a London school teacher, and a college graduate, which was very unusual for a woman at the time. Oh, sure. I mean, obviously, 1880s. You know, they were like, what do you need to go to school for? You're just going to have babies. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Comes naturally. Anyway, and uh, her father was Edwin Binney, who is an American inventor. 
I wonder what he invented. Probably some weird part to something. There's oh, like yeah, a little patent, a patent for it somewhere. Like, you know, a, a screw cover for right. a bookshelf you've exactly. never heard of. Some kind of know. rivet. <laughs> nope. Actually, <laughs> he invented the Crayola crayon. <laughs> oh, my God. Dorothy was in eighth grade at the time. So, obviously, by ninth grade, her family was super fucking rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> They'd been doing fine. Sure. Uh, but they weren't, like, rich. And then now they're super rich. Wow. Turns out kids are a big business. Did anybody <laughs> yeah. know that? <laughs> Has anybody ever tried making money did, off children? Did anybody know that? <laughs> anybody? Anybody? Dorothy graduated high school with honors. She chose Wellesley College because they had a women's crew team. Uh, having grown up on the coast, she loved swimming. She loved being outdoors. Oh, yeah. Her father used to identify bird calls for her when they walked together to school. Right. She spent her summers climbing rocks and swimming in the cold-ass Atlantic Ocean, oh my which God. I would never do. Oh, yeah. They grew up in, they, I mean, they lived in Connecticut. Like, yeah, no, it, that's a no And they me. swam in the ocean a lot. That's a no. Yeah. That's a no for me. I have family in Michigan now, and they go to Lake Michigan. And, I'm, you know, they're, like, in the water. They sent me a picture of my niece, who's like, still a baby, and she looks very upset to be in the water. And I was like, that's how I know she's related to me. Because yeah. she's like, what the fuck are y'all no. doing in this cold-ass water? No. Yeah. Well, and Dorothy had cousins in Florida who would come up to visit them, I can imagine. <laughs> and be like, you call this a beach? Yeah, right. Seriously. Uh, they went on lots of camping trips. She said she learned to hold a fishing rod when she was two years old. She was baiting her own hooks by four, and she took the fish from the hook by herself by the time she was six. I mean, I could barely use a Crayola crayon by the time I was six. <laughs> <laughs> on winter trips at their home in North Carolina, she would spend the day hunting turkey and quail, and then she would, like, chop down a tree, make some fudge, build a fire to sit by and sip hot chocolate. And the next day, they'd go for a long horseback ride, roast peanuts, roughhouse with their siblings, and then their mom would read them Rudyard Kipling at bedtime. Crazy. I mean, just jam-packed days. And like these days, you'd be like, I was on my phone, and then I went to bed. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, very active, outdoorsy, do shit, get it done, mm -hmm. make it happen. At Wellesley, she was known as an overachiever. What? Yeah, Dorothy? I know. Like... <laughs> Oh, it must be a day ending in Y because Dorothy's overachieving. Like, she was an overachiever when she wasn't in school. Of course, she was in school. You know, this girl didn't stop. You telling me that Leobed Binney <laughs> is an overachiever? <laughs> she excelled in classes. She studied zoology. She was in plays. She sang in the Glee Club. She attended shows all the time. She just couldn't stop. And then at the end of her sophomore year in 1908, she went with some friends on a cross-country two-month camping trip with the Sierra Club to climb Mount Whitney, which is in California. It's the tallest mountain in the lower 48 states because, of course, she did. Duh. <laughs> and while she was there out in the California wilderness, she met a man. A man? A handsome, rugged man with dark hair and wild ambitions. Mm. He had joined the excursion as a guide and was assigned to Dorothy's group. He was also an East Coast adventurer who loved the outdoors and had a bright future ahead of him. His name was George Putnam. He was born on September 7th, 1887, which makes him and Dorothy less than a year apart. <gasps> Age-appropriate alert. Alert, alert, alert. No way. Wow. We never get people in these stories who are like the same age. <laughs> these historical romances, they're all like... <laughs> 
And at, at the ripe age of 79, he finally met his wife, 13-year-old Jessica. You know, like that's how it feels sometimes. Right. So it's very nice mm -hmm. that these two were almost the exact same damn age. George was born into a successful publishing company. Uh, it was G.P. Putnam's Sons, which today is a division of Penguin Random House. His parents gave him a very intellectual upbringing. So he was real focused on education and experience and a voracious reader. Although he did say he was a shy student and, quote, most of my small activities were quite lonely. When he was 11, the Spanish Civil War was brewing um, and George really wanted to help the Red Cross. So he told his father he wanted to publish a newspaper and his father helped him create the Will-o'-the-Wisp paper. And he sold advertising space and he ended up raising $86 for the Red Cross. Let's Today, check it here. that would be as if he raised... $2,800. Well, that's pretty good for an 11-year-old. Yeah, not bad. You know there'd be some little viral article about it. Right, right, definitely. <laughs> today, if, <laughs> if it was happening today. I hope his dad matched it. I mean, I mean, they certainly had them. It's <laughs> like, oh, and the Putnam's family will give $86 to the Red Cross. <laughs> we're only millionaires. Kind of, we're really feeling the pinch of this $86. <laughs> it's, a spa. Oh, it's everything we can spare, Red Cross. <laughs> so Dad, the war. come on. Let me give him around 5K, all right? <laughs> I know you got it. So anyway, George transferred from Harvard to Berkeley after his first year because he wanted to be outdoors. So he signed up with Sierra Club to become a guide. And he and Dorothy were joined at the hip pretty quickly um, she wrote on July 1st, 1908, up at 3 a.m., 35-mile stage ride, 8-mile walk, Putnam with me most of the time. I like him. That journal entry right there was an exhausting read for me. I mean, up at 3 a.m. A 35-mile stagecoach ride and then an 8-mile walk? Forget it. It's, it's too much. That's, that's a week for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll do five miles a day in the stagecoach and I'll, I'll get my 2,000 steps in. I'd get up at 3 a.m. and then be like, and I've done enough. <laughs> <laughs> Looks I like today's a, a watch. Today. Yeah. <laughs> so then came the climb up Mount Whitney. Dorothy wore a long skirt and a petticoat and knee-high boots. Great <laughs> hiking clothes. It's just how you had to do it if you were a woman back then. So just add that to her list of accomplishments. She not only hiked Mount Whitney, but in a skirt. Okay, this is what I always think about um, athletic accomplishments uh -huh. back in the day with like women riding horses or like anything they ever did that was like astonishing accomplishment. And I'm like, and they did it in a skirt yeah. and probably a skirt under their skirt and then some really weird undergarments. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <And> like, <laughs> it's like Ginger Rogers saying, you know, did everything Fred Astaire did, but backwards and in high heels. Uh huh. So they started this hike at night and they reached the top by 9 a.m. At 10,000 feet, she had a nosebleed, and she staggered breathless forward and made it to the top. She was one of the last few in the group, and the only woman, to make it all the way to the summit. And she wrote, Enough. It was a staggering and frightening event. Adventure, plenty. <laughs> she was like, did it? Done it. Don't need that again. Yeah, she's <laughs> like, here's a note to my future self. Yeah. We're done climbing a mountain. All right, girl. <laughs> We're done with it. Check it off the list. Remember this feeling. <laughs> We're done. So back at college, Dorothy is at Wellesley again back on the East Coast, and she continued to date other men, but she kept getting regular letters from George, and she would reply in time. 
Letters from him came almost every day, nearly as frequently as he sent her red roses. Meanwhile, she continued to absolutely dominate in every single thing that she did. Her hometown newspaper ran an article about her, talking about how she always excelled in sports, and she was winning medals and swimming races and crew teams. She was a center on her college basketball team. She kicked ass at tennis and golf, and she was a skillful driver. You know, cars were hot, too, oh, so sure, sure. she was out there, look at me, driving a car. She had solos all the time in her chapel choir. She ended up being the leader of the Glee Club, and she starred as Ferdinand in The Tempest, amongst other shows. One entry in her journal read, In PM, one cup first prize in ladies' 50-yard dash after cheering of a big crowd. Yesterday, rescued a drowning man. Stranger. Okay, uh... sure, just add a little footnote in there that you saved a man's life, I guess. <laughs> I mean, Come straight on. up in my journal, I'd be like, I say I fucking saved somebody's life today. <laughs> this man owes his life to me. <laughs> yeah. In my journal, it'd be like, oh, my God, I watched a man drown today. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's probably more accurate. <laughs> I, really, I didn't know what to do. I'm not that good a swimmer. I, I screamed and called for help. But no one came. <laughs> People were blown away by how well Dorothy whistled. Mm -hmm. Like a damn bird, they said. Right. Save some for the rest of us, Dorothy. I know, you got too many things you're good at, all right? Like, come on. Oh, my God. Whistled like a bird. I just got that. That's the title of the book. Oh. That's what they meant. <laughs> Way to make the connection there, Eli. <laughs> <laughs> Better late than never. Yeah, well, you know. She also had started to take a particular interest in the newfangled invention, the airplane. And she was fascinated by the Wright brothers. She was following, you know, all the stories about them at the time and their work. Yeah. George was a little bit stiff and kind of a quiet guy. Yeah. And that wasn't really her speed. She kind of hoped that she would loosen him up a bit while, you know, they were dating, getting to know each other. But when he proposed, she wondered if she loved him enough. And she wrote... Oh, heavens, why this? But she did. She went for it. Uh, she started to get excited about it. She wrote crazy about him in a journal entry before the wedding. Um, and obviously, both their families were very excited about it. Oh, my God. Said this before. Yeah. I think I alluded to it in the last episode because this was coming. There is nothing rich white people love more mm -hmm. than their children marrying other rich white people. So Throughout true. history, through, across space and time. Rich white people, I guess rich, powerful people in general, it's obviously, because that happened in China and, and places too, but mm -hmm. but come on, they love it. They're like, yes, marry them to that family, mm -hmm. create a dynasty. The name. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. I don't care if she's your cousin. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they weren't cousins. They were not. <laughs> um, she really liked his family. She was fascinated by p the publishing world and all of that stuff that they were involved in. They married on October 26th, 1911, and a month later they got on a ship and sailed for a honeymoon in Central America. Obviously, this was dope for these two outdoorsy folks. Oh, yeah, this is a dream come true trip. Uh huh. They toured remote villages. They met the president of Panama. Ooh. They also met a bunch of other foreign dignitaries due to George's family hookups. And they get to study and read all the papers about the current construction of the Panama Canal, 
which might sound kind of boring, but these two nerds were super into oh, yeah. finding out the mechanics of all that and everything. Yeah. So they were very interested. Loved it. And again, this is... This Honestly, is... I probably would be too. Well, and again, this is like 1911. Mm-hmm. Shit like that is changing the world. And they knew it. They knew they were looking at all these brand new creations and inventions. And it's fascinating. Like if somebody dug a canal now, I wouldn't t- give two shits about it. I'm like, yeah, another canal. <laughs> but the Panama Canal was like an unheard of project. Right. And they were so into that, especially these these types of people were just like, what's changing the world next? I want to be there. I want to see it. I want to be a part of it. Yeah. Well, and on the other side of the Suez Canal, you know, blockage, right. <laughs> the situation that we <laughs> all saw happen. Um, I think maybe maybe people of our age take canals a bit for granted yeah. and <laughs> don't understand yeah. um, what a feat of engineering and everything that they really are right. and then how much i mean how important they are to getting us the stuff we want yeah. uh, from other places in a timely manner <laughs> i you mean you know get all one that of your face wash products or something yeah for weeks for and weeks. weeks yeah yeah and i was like evergreen. must be on the evergreen yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i don't know that for sure but i definitely was imagining my clean and clear on the on the evergreen <laughs> the thing about this trip though it was a little businessy mm-hmm they seem to spend more time hanging out with dignitaries and doing stuff like that than they actually did doing anything romantic. But fortunately, they're back home, and in the coming months, George did start to loosen up. Dorothy wrote that he was more playful and silly, and they seemed to be getting along really well. Together, they moved to Bend, Oregon, which is where Dorothy led the charge on women's suffrage. Dorothy's father and her husband George had both been outspoken supporters of women's rights. And in fact, George's own mother had been a prominent suffragette in Rye, New York. A paper there once wrote, quote, A branch of the Equal Franchise League was formed here with Mrs. John B. Putnam as president. Frankly, this paper has not taken the movement seriously quite yet. Which, two things. Um, a, uh... get your shit together. I hope, I hope they printed a big apology when they did finally take it seriously. I mean... And second of all, I love how they're like, Oh, look at this prominent feminist, Mrs. John Putnam. Like, I know. She, she's give like, her a name. I have my own name. Thank you very much. <laughs> and then, yeah, so in 1912, Dorothy rushed home to Bend, Oregon from visiting her family in Connecticut to end up being the second woman ever to vote in the state of Oregon. The governor's wife, of course, being the first. Uh, they both did their part in World War One. George worked for the Department of Justice, and Dorothy headed up the inspection division of the government's munitions factories. So she's making sure all that shit would actually explode when it was supposed to, <laughs> I guess. After the war, George's uncle insisted that George take a position at the family business, G.P. Putnam's Sons, the publishing company. And his first assignment was to go to Warsaw, Poland, and convince the premier to publish his memoirs with them. So George and Dorothy took the trip together. Um, And as they toured Europe, they both wrote about how horrific the post-war landscape was. Yeah. Um, no, No surprise, I guess, but you do have to kind of paint a picture for people sometimes. Um, There were starving families, scorched farmlands. And, quote, hundreds and hundreds of women in deep mourning. I think that's something that we don't we don't think of here as much because there's so rarely war in 
on American soil, mm-hmm. right? So right. we don't think about, you know, how much of Europe, I mean, how many people's properties just got marched through. Mm-hmm. Those battlefields aren't reserved as battlefields. That was probably somebody's farm. They're little towns. Yeah. yeah. Like the, you you want to cross the tiny river, you know, to get into right. wherever. And there's a whole village around the river. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and people just had to leave all their shit. George was working on papers to publish about what they were seeing when he returned, and Dorothy worked as his typist. And she wrote that it was hard to keep up with him because he was so focused and driven on the assignment. Their eighth wedding anniversary came and went, and they were so busy they barely acknowledged it. I think we can speak to that. That's well, happened yeah. to us before. <laughs> yeah, one, one time on our fifth like dating anniversary, I guess, uh-huh. during like right smack in the middle of the Fringe Festival. So I was busy running the festival and he was in a show, like directing a show. So you were very busy. And uh-huh. so I straight up like over the box office counter was like, hey, it's our anniversary. And we like high five. <laughs> that was <laughs> all we could do. Went about our day. Yeah. So um, I get this. Yeah. <laughs> I feel this. Even as they sailed home, Dorothy battled seasickness. Um, she tried to hide it because she just was so insistent on typing for him and making sure that his his uh, shit was in order because she really liked being a part of that work. Yeah. Sally says it seemed like Dorothy seemed to take more value in being George's assistant than in being his wife. Um, she loved being involved in his writing. But as years went by and George's career took off, she became less and less needed by him. Right. Um, and they had two sons now, David and June. She loved being a mother. But her life's getting more domestic. Not a surprise, but that's not really Dorothy's right, personality. Right. Um, so she, I think she got a little uh, wanderlust, a little restless leg syndrome, <laughs> kind of. <laughs> and she started traveling like crazy on her own. Uh, she said, Women grow old prematurely because our badly organized civilization gives them so little to do except talk and dress. Come on. That's nail on the head, right? I mean... I love... Our badly organized civilization. I mean, I love... Who has put it better than that? That is a great way of putting it. Oh, my God. It is. It's like, it's not inherently evil, but it is badly organized. Yeah, badly organized is a great way to put it. Now, they were having a big mansion built called Rocknell. Uh, that was going to be in Rye, New York, which was the Putnam's hometown. Big, you know, kind of rural area northeast of New York City on the coast. And Dorothy took this opportunity while the house was being built to go on an oceanographic expedition to the Galapagos. Awesome. This really is Dorothy's form of therapy. If I'm not feeling good, I'm going to take an excursion. (laughs) And it would be mine, too, if I could afford it. Quite frankly, I'd be like, I'm feeling down. Let me book a trip to the Galapagos real quick. (laughs) That'll cheer me up. (laughs) She brought her oldest son, David, with her. And when one phase of the trip ended... She volunteered to stay an additional six weeks. And George back home was half sad, half jealous. And he kind of got a little passive aggressive about it. This is a literal quote from a letter that George wrote her about it. He said, quote, I phoned your mother about your cable announcing you'd stay another six weeks. She was pretty surprised and critical. Can't see how she can leave you that long, she said. Leave her new house. Leave the baby. It's not fair. Ho-hum. Lordy, how I miss you. Uh, (laughs) And so it basically just keeps saying things like, Dearest, so glad you're having a good time. I'm good here. Totally no worries. Not lonely or heartbroken or anything (laughs) at all. I mean, take your time. Have fun. (laughs) 
I just finished building our enormous house in case you want to come back and see it. It'll be here, you know, whenever you get home. Just very deliberately, like, I need you to come back now. You know, I don't want to say it. I want you to have fun, but I'm having a hard time. Would it have worked gone. better if he had just said it out loud? I th- do you think? Or do I you think feel if like he just she would have been more turned off? I don't know. One way or the other, because I feel like he could have said like, hey, you know what? I know you're having a good time. I miss you. It's tough. It's tough here without you, but we're getting by, you know, or he could have said or he could have just sucked it up and been like, I know I'm having a hard time, but she needs this. She's out there. So I'm not going to put it in her head and make her feel worse. I'm just going to say, hope you're having a great time. Mm -hmm. Miss you. Love you. Bye. Mm -hmm. Like either one of those would have been better than this, like super, I think, subtle like hint hint yeah but he's just kind of whiny you know and he didn't have the strength to like suck it up mm-hmm. recognize that she was doing her own thing right now and let her do it or have the strength to just be upfront about his feelings yeah. about what she was doing yes. because that's fair too it's yeah. like valid if you're like hey it's been a while like yeah can sure you please come home sure sure but like i feel like the yeah, it just it seems a little passive aggressive. And I uh-huh. think that would have set up her back more than if he had just been straight up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, anyway, when she got home, George threw this huge party. The whole harbor was like raging when her <laughs> ship pulled in. They're bumping, they're playing like Sweet Home Alabama. <laughs> they're just like popping bottles. She's fireworks. like, turn the ship around. <laughs> <laughs> she got off the ship. From across the dock, they saw each other, they locked eyes, and that's about it. You might say that they were closer together than they'd been in 10 weeks, but the distance between them was greater than ever. If you were selling cliches and giving a product demonstration, that's when you might say that. <laughs> it's, it's super cheesy, but it it's also just had to be said. Right, right, right. It was just kind of a heavy thud, and I think Dorothy realized she didn't really miss her life in New York. So Dorothy's back home. Things are a little weird. Um, And I think that we'll come back and explore that right after this break. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Bring it every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL Schedule Release, presented by Verizon, coming in May. 
Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. Finding the right news podcast can feel like dating. It seems promising until you start listening. When you hit play on Post Reports, you'll get fascinating conversations and sometimes a little fun, too. I'm Martine Powers. And I'm Elahe Azadi. Martine and I are the hosts of Post Reports. The show comes out every weekday from The Washington Post. You can follow and listen to Post Reports wherever you get your podcasts. It'll be a match, I promise. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater. And this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. And we're back. So George, Georgie boy... He's crazy busy with work right now. G.P. Putnam's son's blowing up. He has got assignments, and he's just constantly working. And Dorothy came home, and she did manage to find some pleasure in setting up Rocknell, the new house. Especially the gardens outside. This was her chance to be outside, be in nature, get her hands dirty. She loved that. And she got to decorate the interior of the house with all sorts of knickknacks they'd collected in their travels abroad. Now, George took David, their oldest son, on an expedition to Greenland. <laughs> Fucking David. Like, David got to do everything. For real. If, uh, I were, if I were June, I'd be like, <laughs> uh, I hope y'all got a trip planned for me. <laughs> and they do. June will get to travel, too. I think he's too young at this point. But even still, I mean, just like any kid, you know. Right. Just like, oh, what are we doing today, parents? Oh, I'm going to South America. Cool. Oh, today I'm going to Greenland. Great. I'm going to Japan. Awesome. <laughs> and they're like, June... You can sit with your books. <laughs> Here's a crayon. <laughs> They're like, that house is just stuffed. Every cabinet is full of crayons <laughs> just spilling out of everything. Every cookie tin. There's more crayons. It's all I ever have. <laughs> he like draws pictures of the Galapagos like, I'd like to go here. <laughs> and they're like, that's great, honey. That's so cute. We'll put it on the fridge. <laughs> So George's company was publishing explorers books, especially. It's a hot trade right now. Again, turn of the century, people are just taking adventures and exploring the wilds of the world and a lot of colonial attitudes <laughs> going <laughs> right, on. Right, just right. like, I'm going to go witness this fascinating culture and comment on it. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, they come back, they write books, and Putnam's was the place to go to publish it. So George was like, well, I'm doing all this publishing of adventurers and explorers books, maybe I should go do a little of my own. Uh, which, sure, whatever excuse you need to take these trips, right. <laughs> George. And he decides to go on this Greenland trip with his son, David. And meanwhile, Dorothy is back entertaining all of his business associates at the house, which usually meant a room full of the biggest adventurers of the day. There's a joke going around at the time that you couldn't get a meeting with the Putnams unless you conquered some uncharted territory first. <laughs> And I'd be like, well, I haven't been to the Putnams yet, so that is uncharted territory. If ah. you just invite me, I'm ready to go. There's the loophole. You're going to write a book yeah, of my, explore, my explorations of the Putnam Mansion. <laughs> my Journey to Rocknell. Volume one, The Kitchens. <laughs> Definitely plural kitchens. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know it. 
But the mansion, the garden, the guests, none of that was going to satisfy Dorothy for long. She just wasn't the same woman that she was when they had got married, which was 15 years earlier now, because she didn't truly know who she was then when they got married. In 1927, she wrote, Married couples, out of 24, apart eight hours, sleep six hours, in each other's company six hours, times seven days equals a 42-hour week. Soon we'll see each other by appointment only if this goes on. Well, it suits me. Wow. Yikes. <laughs> She's like, eh. She's like, George, I don't know. I'll see you next Friday at, from 6 to 7 p.m. Uh-huh. She's like, uh, uh, do we have time for a fight on Tuesday <laughs> at 3? Oh, you're busy with, uh, you know, with Dr. Livingston, I presume? All right, well, <laughs> how about Wednesday at 5? Uh, yes, I can make that work. Oh, perfect. We'll fight Wednesday at 5. But I have a hard out at 6 p.m. That's fine. I don't have that much to say. <laughs> <laughs> she planned more excursions. Of course. Uh, of course. Uh, and she found some sense of excitement in that. But otherwise, she was kind of getting more and more miserable all the time. And that trouble leads us to this episode's side piece. Your place or mine? Not Amelia. Not yet. This is a different side piece, and this friend of a friend had been brought in to meet the famous Putnams. His name was George Weymouth, who will mostly be known throughout her diaries as GW, so we don't have two Georges, right? Right. He was 19 years younger than Dorothy, who was about 38 now, so this kid's 19. He was as smooth as he was fly. She wrote, quote, Imagine in a crowd of rather sophisticated, over-busy, sallowish people, a boy, modest, good-looking, well-built, impressionable, adoring young barbarian. God, what a relief to jaded feelings. <laughs> <laughs> Damn, Dorothy. She said, God, what a relief to mm. jaded feelings. Oh, man, I finally feel something again. Damn. I, Damn. Ooh, ooh, I haven't had a tingle like that in 19 years, she said. Yikes. <laughs> and she did not stop thinking about GW, which, of course, really didn't do anything for her marriage to George Putnam. And she kind of got more disconnected. So she's like, you know what? I got to do something. I got to get away. So, of course... She booked a trip to South America. I'm upset. Let me take a trip about it. Yeah. She returned after a few weeks. She was fresh and excited. She had a lot of energy back. And she was really happy to see her family waiting at the docks for her. But after a few days at home, she started to get bummed out again. I mean, this is just a lady who cannot be confined, okay? She's like, yeah. she should just be wandering the earth yeah. her whole life. Or she needs a therapist. Well. You know what I mean? Like, that's the other trick here, too, is, like, she clearly has depression. Yes. And she's having a lot of questions about her purpose and her right. place in the world. Mm -hmm. And she's like, well, I guess I'll just distract myself by spending a bunch of money on an excursion to another part of the world. I know that feeling. Sure. I've done that, you know, to Disney World a couple times. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I haven't quite made it to Panama yet, but. I, I know the feeling of distracting yourself by planning a trip from your own oh, depression. Yeah. Sure. 
But, you know, as therapists, we're not really a thing. Yeah. <laughs> at yeah. this point in history, she was taking a trip about it. Yeah. Um, so anyway, she's feeling a little bummed, probably a little confined at home, kind of bored with the tedious day-to-day of living in a house, managing a house. And then she hears a familiar voice coming from downstairs. So she creeps down the stairs and she peeked into the kitchen and she sees her son, David, talking to George Weymouth, her <gasps> young barbarian. Oh, my goodness. And she's like, oh, my God. <laughs> she's like, dip back upstairs. Uh-huh. And collected herself. You know what I'm saying? She's probably put pinched her cheeks a little <laughs> red in her cheeks and make sure her hair is all right. You know what I'm saying? And then she tried to act cool. And she, like, walked into the kitchen. She's like, oh, um, George, is that it? Is that right? <laughs> yes, didn't know you were here. Um, it's fine. Whatever. I'm cool. Uh, so what's going on? <laughs> what brings you to the house? Right. He's like, oh, yeah, no, no, no big deal. No big deal. But, uh, you know, crazy story. Your husband just hired me to be your son's tutor. So I'm going to be around a lot. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, maybe we should go get lunch sometime. Uh, j- sure. That would be <laughs> just fine with me. Yeah. I mean, come on, George. What you doing hiring? <laughs> George hires young yeah. barbarian to be a tutor. <laughs> He's like, oh, you seem to get along with the new tutor, I, Dorothy. I've hired him full time. This guy's oblivious, it feels to me sometimes. <laughs> like He's just like, oh, were you attracted to him? Oh, well, shit. I've decided uh, I'm going away for six weeks and I've decided to hire him as a bed warmer. He's going to sleep next to you <laughs> just to make sure you don't get chilly at night. Okay? Don't want you to miss me too much. Yeah. <laughs> It'll make you think of me while you're sleeping next to him, right? Right? That's what it'll do, George. You're both named George, so (laughs) that helps. She won't have any problem if she calls out his name, you know? (laughs) He's like, like, which George? (laughs) Do you think they stop and say, which George? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, George. Wait. Which George? Uh, anyway, they do have lunch together. They uh-huh. have a picnic together, Ooh. and it's super hot. Yes. And she writes in her journal about springtime and how there's all sorts of new love in the air. Just just, just new love. Nothing to do with me personally yeah, or anything. Just, just the feeling of love in the air. sense of springtime and love. And then on May 19th and May 20th, she recorded two entries in her diary. The first was her and G.W. sitting by the fire after dinner, popping open a bottle of wine, and having, quote, an evening never to be forgotten, music, wine, content. And next to that date, Dorothy had left a secret symbol that Sally determined to be what she wrote when she got nasty. What was it? I we don't know. We don't know the symbol. I need. I wish I got to. Well, find... can we pull in? Do we have time to pull into speculation station? <laughs> no, and but decide let's do what it. it is for her. <laughs> I, I, for me, it's like it, I see it as like a little spirally snake with a big hmm. smiley face and hearts for eyes. Oh, interesting. I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know. I, what do you I see? don't know. I mean, it could be. It could be something as simple as a just a little dot. Could be a little heart. Oh, just like a, like a little pound sign or something. <laughs> pound. I mean, she would hashtag that, town. She's pound town. <laughs> well, you know, pound is a pound. You know, right? <laughs> um, maybe it's just a little. Um, I don't know. Maybe it's a pineapple. That's a 
That's oh, a sure, symbol sure. for swinging yeah, couples. Yeah. Just learned that myself the other day. So oh, apparently okay, that's, that's right. kind of a thing. Yeah. Maybe we should do a little pineapple or, or, or rabbit ears or a little a monkey. Pomegranate. A pomegranate. Something very fertile. That's true. Yeah. That's true. Or a dick. Maybe she drew a big dick. That would be hilarious. <laughs> like She's just, just This is my secret symbol. <laughs> no for when I got know what nasty. it means. <laughs> and Susan's like, well, that's how come I figured out what it meant. Because it was pretty fucking obvious. <laughs> hey, artist friends. <laughs> Why don't you yes. come up with a secret symbol for a diary that says... I had sex tonight <laughs> and uh, shoot it to us on Instagram or Twitter yes. and we'll, we'll put it on blast. To, I would love to see your versions. <laughs> so the next entry was from the following morning and it describes, quote, a marvelous dawn. Apparently the world has new significance. At least a part of me long forgotten is still here. Ruthless, perhaps, and self-willed. <laughs> Whew. This is This is a woman experiencing... What we call an awakening. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, turns out orgasms are fun. <laughs> but while they were getting busy, another man was getting busy just a few miles away in New York City. His name was Charles Lindbergh. And he was hopping in his airplane machine to be the first person to ever fly across the Atlantic. And this was this exact night. while Literally while they were doing it, Charles Lindbergh was taking off. While they're taking off, he's taking off. <laughs> yeah, there's like, you know, a lot of uh, imagery of like an airplane <laughs> going through a tunnel. <laughs> airplanes go through tunnels. <laughs> what kind of tunnel is this? An airplane taking <laughs> off, you know, at a 45 degree angle, straight up. Coming in for a landing. Coming in for a landing. <laughs> into a tunnel. Into a tunnel. <laughs> Yeah. So America is freaking the fuck out. When he got back from his trip, New York City was one giant party. Ticker tape everywhere. They were sweeping that shit up for days. Popping bottles, music, uh, you know, dancing in the streets. Mm -hmm. I mean, just everybody's. Oh, my God. A guy just literally flew a plane across the ocean for the first time. I I mean, honestly, I am quite literally I wish I could experience that because not knowing that airplanes are a thing and then airplanes are a thing. How mind-blowing. I mean, we take them for granted because, of course, airplanes are a thing now. Mm -hmm. But I can't imagine the feeling you would have the first time you saw it. I would feel like the world was this brand new magical place that had just cracked wide open. I, I'm so amazed I by think, it. I think that is kind yeah. of how it felt. Yeah. It, you know, what was it taking a week or a couple months or something to cross the ocean in a steamship? You know, it was Too like the fastest long. you could go. Right. And now it's like, this guy did it in a matter of hours. Yeah. In this newfangled invention. You know, it's like very exciting. Yeah. And I think even beyond the immediate, like, I think people were also, as they were seeing this kind of new era of invention pop up, um, they're also really looking into the future and they're understanding that this doesn't just mean this. Right. What's Charles Lindbergh flying across doesn't just mean a plane can go across the ocean. It means we don't know what the limits are anymore. Yeah. Literally, the sky is the limit now. Yeah. <laughs> it used to be 10 feet was the limit and now the sky is the limit. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and it had a little bit of space race, I think. Oh, um, uh, sure. Yeah, yeah. Energy because France was also trying really yep. hard to be the first, you know. So it was kind of yep. a little bit of a race to which country was going to, you know, make it into the air right. first. So it was, uh, it, I think it also had that kind of like, yeah, America. Yeah, we did sure, it! sure. You know. It's just so exciting. Mm -hmm. And so George, of course, 
wanted the Charles Lindbergh book because uh, I mean it, they were going to write a book, right? You don't just do something like that and then not put a book out. It's nineteen. 19- I don't think you do anything without yeah. doing it. Even today, you're like, I I ran a failed campaign for a city <laughs> yeah. council, and here's, here's my, my story, <laughs> right? It's 1927, and George wants the Lindbergh book, but of course, so does every other publishing company in the world. So George goes straight to Charles Lindbergh, and he says, hey, he says, hey, let's not fuck around here. Here's a check for $100,000. Give me that book. And Lindbergh looks at the check, which is worth $100,000, and that's uh, $1.5 million today. And Charles Lindbergh says, "Uh, yeah, you can have the book, buddy. (laughs) Like, no questions asked. So their house explodes into activity. Yeah. Um, Carlisle McDonald, who was Lindbergh's ghostwriter, moved into Rocknell, the Putnam's house. Along with teams of writers and researchers, the house basically becomes its own publishing house. Mm-hmm. And they're like working. Imagine the scene in Clueless when all the lawyers are going through all the oh, depositions. Oh, yeah. I and was Cher thinking... is like, let's bring them dinner. <laughs> I was thinking like Wolf of Wall Street when they're making sales you know, in the stock room. Okay, where they're yeah, all yeah, just yeah. chill, you know. Yeah, that too. A lot of you activity. Know, frenetic Anywhere energy, where there's a lot of paper. A lot of men running around. Yeah. <laughs> probably smoke in the air, you know. <laughs> you know it. Oh, it stinks you know so it. bad in there. And Dorothy rolled up her sleeve. She managed the whole house. That's what made me think of Cher. Because she's oh, like, sure, let yeah. me, okay, you know, y'all need to eat some food. We need to get some coffee going. Like, <laughs> you're not taking care of yourselves. And she probably really enjoyed all that activity, oh, too. Yeah. She was like, I feel important right. to this work. And I have stuff to do. And I am just have an outlet for all my energy and all my competence. It felt like the old days between her and George, you know, mm-hmm. where she was half the work. Yeah. You know, she was a big part of getting it done. And now, mm-hmm. now she was again. And this was very exciting, for sure. Yeah. And George traveled around. He pre-sold 100,000 copies of this book to bookstores. Because, again, everybody wants to read Lindbergh's story. And finally, the book was done. And they showed it to Charles Lindbergh. And he goes, nah, never mind. I want to write it myself. (laughs) And George is like, uh, say what now? Excuse me? (laughs) Because I just put a bunch of time and energy. You know, I just spent my whole fucking summer. Bringing okay. 50 people into my house to write your fucking book, buddy. Why didn't you tell me this a few weeks ago? That would be useful. Information <laughs> yeah. that would have been useful to me yesterday. <laughs> no, I'm good. You know what? I'll just write it. <laughs> and it, you know, they didn't have a lot of time before the release. Yeah, they uh, already pre-sold 100,000 copies. Yeah, he needed it by July, so he's really freaking out. And Lindbergh's like, now I got this. He locked himself away. He wrote the whole book longhand in time for the July release. So good for you, Lindbergh. That's yeah. very hard to do. Yeah. And unsurprisingly, it was hugely successful. Charles Lindbergh made $200,000, which is in today's money, 3.1 million bucks. Really, really amazing. Um, I, I want to read that book, actually, too. I have not read it. I'd be interested. Uh, there's a great book called One Summer, 1927 by Bill Bryson. Each chapter is just something amazing that happened in the summer of 1927 and it's like kind of a lot of shit and Lindbergh of course is a whole chapter and is there a chapter about Dorothy and GW getting it on (laughs) there is not so I'm glad that we're filling out Bill Bryson's uh, book there should be because it is an historical event (laughs) um I I don't know if you read Dorothy's journal entries but it was historical for her I know it, it made a difference yeah so George goes off on another Arctic expedition. He'd been sent on these expeditions. A lot of them were um, sponsored by, like, 
the New York Museum of Natural History or things mm-hmm. like that. He's bringing back live polar bears for the Bronx Zoo and, uh, you know, preserved whale carcasses for, for the history museums and things like that. So, mm-hmm. it, it, you know, it's big nature expeditions. Again, <laughs> people marching into a place that isn't <laughs> theirs, taking what they want and bringing it home to look at. Mm-hmm. Just go and observe, buddy. I mean, see some really cool things out there and write it all down. Uh, We'd love to hear about it. (laughs) Anyway, George (laughs) is off on a long voyage and Dorothy is putting his summer clothes away into storage when a little note slipped out of his jacket pocket. Hmm. This was a letter from a woman to him. And in the letter, it is a straight up confession that they're having an affair. And Dorothy says in her diary that she was weirdly unfazed by it. It really just kind of made her feel better about the thing she was having with GW, Mm -hmm. and it made the idea of separating from him easier. Her next diary entry the next day was, I have bought a new Dodge Roadster, very (laughs) snappy sports model, ridiculously expensive and really unnecessary, but it's a funny reaction. (laughs) She said, oh, you're cheating? Cool, I'm going to go buy a car. Thanks. I know, right? (laughs) Which is so... Normally I'd take a trip about it, but you're on a trip, so I'm going to go buy a car about it instead. (laughs) Such a, like, uh, it's such a brilliant move. Yeah. It's classic. A classic move. A classic move, you know, for rich people. Mm -hmm. Are you cheating on me? Fine. Give me that credit card. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to go make myself feel better. After George returned from this long voyage... Dorothy started to really consider leaving him. This was really where it was starting to kind of come into her mind. Like, could this end? Yeah. He knew that they were having troubles, but he kind of thought that she was happy enough with the life they had. But to Dorothy, like, one of her friends had recently divorced her wealthy husband. And she was living alone in this tiny house. And Dorothy wrote, It is very odd, and yet oh so understandable. Why go on forever living with a person who bores one excessively? It's easier to be beaten. I'm not sure. Well, I agree. <laughs> you know, but, you know, in her mind at this point, she's like, I'm so dead inside. Mm-hmm. I'm getting so nothing out of this. I'd rather feel alive than, than this. And she couldn't be intimate with him because she wrote she just mentally didn't enjoy it. They kind of wrote that there's a little bit of conversation there, too, about how how challenging that was and how it kind of sparked up some fights because he was very frustrated with that. He's like, why can't we have sex? Mm-hmm. It's, you know, night after night after night after month after month after month. We're not having sex. And that's 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 not making me happy. And she's like, well, I don't want to. And why are you being so pushy about it? That's not making me happy. Mm-hmm. So just another element where they, you know, are really butting heads a lot. Dorothy went to Hawaii a few months later, like she do. She she got far away. Yep, yep. <laughs> and even there, she just complained about not being with GW. Ooh, she had that GW fever. She was really wanting some GW. But being away from both the Georges <laughs> made her kind of start to think about how bad the scandal would be if, if it came out. Yeah. Really worried about the consequences. She might lose custody of her kids, for yeah. example. Um, so she was kind of like, I have to keep playing the role of George Putnam's wife. Yeah. If I'm going to keep anything that I do like about my life. Right. Also, anyway, while she was gone, GW was hanging out with some young floozy named Darcy Kellogg anyway. Darcy so. Kellogg. Darcy that, Kellogg. That cornflake. <laughs> <laughs> And meanwhile, George Putnam is busy with a new task. He 
was tasked with this kind of mystery project, one that Dorothy would call the most ambitious of his entire career. Ooh, I'm excited. Because he was enlisted to find the first woman to fly across the Atlantic. Oh. And what a ha- task. Right. <laughs> find me a dame who can fly across the Atlantic. <laughs> and a half dozen or so candidates passed his way. Um, but George heard of a young woman in Boston who'd been described as a female Lindbergh. <laughs> so I imagine this guy like, hey, boss, you got to meet this kid, Amelia Earhart. Right. You know, it's like those uh, those biopic movies uh, where they're always, always like, hey, have you heard this new song? This kid's name is Aretha Franklin. <laughs> you Here know, you go, boss. Hey, Chuck, you know that new sound you've been looking for? <laughs> yeah, right. Well, listen to this. <laughs> So yeah, probably that phone call happened. Uh-huh. <laughs> but he had uh-huh. to he had to hold up the the earpiece. The kid's <laughs> name is Bruce piece. Springsteen. <laughs> I don't know, boss. I think we should give him a shot. <laughs> All I know is it was born to run. <laughs> Amelia Earhart was the first woman granted an air license in 1923. Right. So he went to meet her and he was quickly like, "Oh yeah, this is the one." Right. This is the one. And George was not very good at hiding his affection for Amelia. He'd come home and tell Dorothy he'd have all these stories like, oh my God, Amelia said the funniest thing today. Like, <laughs> Amelia's so smart and Amelia's so funny and she's just really cool and really awesome. And do you, do you know what Amelia said yesterday to me? You know, it's just kind of a little, uh-huh. laying on a little like, thick. Dorothy's uh-huh. like, yeah, uh-huh, I get it. <laughs> Oh, great. Oh, yeah, she sounds very interesting, George. Did Amelia say something yesterday? (laughs) But actually, let's not pit them against each other because Amelia and Dorothy became best friends. And besides, however smitten George was with Amelia, it didn't matter. Amelia was engaged to a guy named Sam Chapman. So Dorothy came out to help get things ready for Amelia's flight out of Boston. She would fly from Boston to uh, just outside London. And this was only going to happen three weeks after she'd been selected. This all happened very fast. There was a bit of a race going on. Uh, There were other female pilots in the world. And at one point, another woman even announced, like, I'm actually going to fly across the Atlantic before Amelia does. And the papers, of course, turned it into this air race, you know, and Amelia was like, I don't care. You know, I'm just doing it. You know, I just want to fly across the Atlantic. (laughs) Leave me alone. And it didn't matter because weather kept delaying the flight. First days and days and days. And Dorothy and Amelia just pretty much spent that whole time together, hanging out, getting to know each other, having a really good time. And then eventually the flight, or the hop, as they called it, a hop across the pond, it kept getting delayed until June. So it's months now. And Dorothy ended up going back and forth between her home in New York and Boston a lot. But all the while, back home, she and GW were going strong. Mm. And after every little bang session with the secret symbol that she had... Maybe it was a bone. A bone. (laughs) Bone! She... (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Sorry to any non-Brooklyn Nine-Nine obsessive people out there. Uh, So after every little bone session that she had with him, she would write some florid, evocative, like walk in the clouds style sentimental entry in her diary. That's just like the most, I saw the most beautiful bird today. Like I have new eyes seeing the world. Every sunrise is a gift, you know, that kind of shit. GW is taking care of business. (laughs) She was feeling it. And on June 18th, 1928, 
Amelia Earhart landed in England, becoming the first woman and the second person ever to cross the Atlantic Ocean by air. Pretty cool. Mm-hmm. Pretty cool. Pretty cool. Pretty, pretty cool. cool. But at 39 years old, Dorothy's excitement for her new friend was matched by some resentment as well, because it kind of made her miss the sea, made her miss this feeling of freedom. Um, Amelia was a symbol at the time for women. Uh, Susan describes her as, quote, an almost mythical figure for women of her generation who only fantasized about escaping their domestic routines. And meanwhile, George Putnam is totally swept up in all the publicity after Amelia's flight because Amelia was this symbol. She was also a fashion icon. She was on the front of every newspaper in the Western world. She had tea with Winston Churchill. So George took on the role of being her business manager. And George and Dorothy fought, as they would do sometimes, about her indifference to him versus his insistence on on her responding to him yeah. more. So just things are contentious between the two of them. It's more exciting when he's with Amelia, probably. and. There's just not a lot between them anymore yeah. at this point in their relationship. Now, I want to pause for a second here and insert that George Putnam and Amelia Earhart is an entirely other story. Mm-hmm. And I look forward to doing that as its own episode. Yeah. It really is. There's so much else going on there. So we're really focused this time on Dorothy and George. Mm-hmm. And while Amelia is here and a huge influence on their relationship, we're going to look specifically at the two of them. And then at a later date, we'll look specifically at the other side of it with George and Amelia mm-hmm. uh, and have a whole other story to tell. I think yeah, that's really cool. Totally. Yeah. So when Amelia got back from her Atlantic flight, the three of them stuck together between Boston and New York City. There's Again, massive parties, ticker tape parades, music, press, press, press. Right. Um, And Dorothy was an invaluable friend to Amelia because she understood celebrity really well. She had been, you know, in papers since high school, I guess. Everyone's like talking about how great she is at everything. And she knew how it could affect a woman in particular. And Amelia essentially moved into their house to write her book. (laughs) Obviously, George was like, write your book. Guess who's going to publish it? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Me. So, again, there was this huge hustle and bustle in the house while she's getting her book written. Every day, Amelia and Dorothy would take an afternoon swim together, which is nice. Get a little exercise, a little cutie. They loved swimming. They all had just daily swimming routines. And Dorothy would take her shopping and would take her to go meet her family in Connecticut. Amelia even ended up dedicating her book to Dorothy. So they were really close. Like they They were becoming very good friends. Yeah. But obviously there was something else going on. Like, women were always fawning over George. He was a handsome, successful guy. That was something Dorothy was fairly used to, and she didn't really bat an eye at, because as a business associate of theirs put it, she never had to worry because George was such a workaholic. Work was all he ever thought about. But this is different because Amelia was George's work. Yeah. So now his focus is directly on this woman who's paying a lot of attention to him. And that started to become clear to Dorothy that, like, maybe there was something else going on here. One day in August of 1928, Dorothy had canceled some plans to see her family, so she was going to be home instead of out of town in Connecticut. And George flipped his absolute shit. He lost his mind, and he was furious that Dorothy was going to be home because Amelia and I have a swim date today. You know, and it's like, 
okay, calm down, buddy. <laughs> I mean, sorry. Right? Like, I'm going to be in my own house. <laughs> yeah. And then just making it a little little obvious there, too. Like, right. oh, I'm sorry. Were you planning on doing something that you can't do if I'm here? We were going to swim naked, but now we can't. <laughs> we were going to have a lot of sex in the pool. But now my wife is here ruining everything. Jeez, how rude. <laughs> While George and Amelia had tried to keep their affection for one another secret, rumors were definitely circulating now, right? Mm. At first, Dorothy really didn't think Amelia would land her proverbial plane mm. in the Putnam proverbial airfield because they had such a good friendship, right? But she was definitely cautious about it. Mm. She's hearing these rumors, too. And, you know, she didn't want to be around for any of this ugly speculation. She was like, I don't want to hear it. I don't want people gossiping about me. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take a trip. Yeah. <laughs> and she went out west to the desert and the, and the, and the frontier land. She arrived in Wyoming for some canyoneering, some hiking, some real frontier shit. Yes. Uh, probably some good boots. Oh, yeah. And when she arrived, holy shit, who had come to meet her but GW? Um, originally, he wasn't going to be able to make it to this out west trip, but he wanted to surprise her and gr by greeting her at the train station. So he hitched. Delightful. I know. Cute. So sweet. This is basically like a guy running through the airport, you know, yeah. <laughs> trying to get you. <laughs> So he hitchhiked over from a Jackson Hole ranch where he had been visiting Darcy Kellogg. What? That Jackson Hole? <laughs> <laughs> I left my Jackson Hole to see you. <laughs> and Dorothy did not love that, no, obviously. She that was... was like, oh, okay. And she was starting to realize that this GW thing was beautiful but temporary. Yeah. It wasn't going to go anywhere. He's only 21. He's spending all this time with this beautiful woman his own age. Dorothy's married. She's 40. So she's kind of like, okay, this was really fun. And I wish it wasn't over, but it's probably kind of over. Yeah. I mean, she's, it's not really that, you know, simple. She's not. Shrugging it off. Obviously but, not. But, it's, but I think, yeah, she does have that kind of realization of like, this is, this is not compatible. No matter how hard I try, mm -hmm. there's too many factors here that are going to make this pretty impossible unless we totally abandon each of our individual lives. So anyway, they were both kind of realizing that maybe their, their idol was coming to an end. And that night he went to her tent and he whispered her name and he reached in and he handed her a poem by C.H. Town. So let's go on down to Poetry Corner, where we're going to hear a little breakup poem. It will not last, this little love of ours. But does that matter? Really, not a bit. We will have had one moment exquisite, and it will vanish like summer flowers. Blessed be our failure, flint in little showers. Not the great pyrotechnical display of Abelard and Heloise. One day of love for us beneath those amorous bowers. Lighter than snow is love that men call light. Lighter than butterflies' swift, vagrant wings. The least snow can make the world more bright. And who refuses what the summer brings? Blessed be all kisses, and blessed be the love that dies before satiety. Wow. Yeah, so a nice little piece kind about... beautiful... About, let it, you know, about... Yeah. Things coming to an end, but that not being, but let's not, not scorn Not necessarily them. sad, but yeah. happy what happened. Yeah. You know. Smile because it happened. Exactly. Right. Yeah. When do you think that people are going to start texting this poem 
to Tinder dates <laughs> oh God, that they're like, actually, uh, I'm good. And then they'll write TLDR. It's over. <laughs> it's over. I ain't reading all that. <laughs> I'm happy for you, though. I'm sorry that happened. Uh-huh. Uh, but they'll call it Townsing. Townsing. <laughs> they'll be like, I towned the shit out of that guy. <laughs> oh, man. You sent him the poem? I did. I, te- I texted that entire poem <laughs> to this guy. The least snow can make the world more bright. LOL. LOL. LMAO. (laughs) She knew that it was time to let go of this. And she knew that they had both come to this decision together without saying it. It was an unspoken realization on both their parts. This is awkward. We both know why. Let's just trade a nice poem and go our separate ways. I think everybody, well, not everybody, but I think most people have had that where you don't ever really say it, but you both know it's not there anymore. Yeah. And so it's very. And then after you do that, I think you're supposed to continue dating them for six months, right? While it's really awkward. Uh-huh. And that, yeah. and you have a lot of fights. And uh-huh. isn't that isn't how that you right? do it, right? <laughs> That's how I always. You needed this poem. Oh, shit. <laughs> I should have had this poem. I should have gotten towns. <laughs> you should have been towns. So GW left mm-hmm. and she went on. On the rest of the trip, she was bright and social. She was. Talking to everybody she met, strangers on the train. She was hanging out in the dining car, telling stories. She fascinated everyone. This is one of those entries where it's like men and women alike were just magnetized to her. Uh, you know, her her stories and her brightness and her mm-hmm. just fascinating nature. She went from Wyoming to Seattle. She went back to Bend, visit her old hometown. And she went down to Pasadena to visit her sick brother. And he had a condition that would later end up being called Lou Gehrig's disease. Had a different name back then, just like the technical term. But right. he was he was not doing well, and that was really hard for her, too. The rumors are flying now about George and Amelia. Oh, no pun intended. Oops. <laughs> True. The rumors were taking a quick hop across the Atlantic about George and Amelia. And George wrote to Dorothy urgently to come back home. Um, Because these rumors were kind of making their relationship seem more real, I guess. And he was worried. And Dorothy not being there was kind of adding fuel to the rumor mill fire. And he just felt like she was getting further and further away from him. And he was, for the first time, actually worried that he was going to lose his wife for good. And she did come back. George was doing damage control all but admitting to Dorothy that there was an affair going on. Right. Um, Dorothy all but knew it was true. I mean, you know, they, again, like kind of like with GW, nothing was said explicitly, but everybody knew what was true. Yeah, we know what's going on here. There's no secret happening. And he was very worried about Amelia's public image, which I think Dorothy would be like, oh, you're worried about Amelia's public <laughs> But it does matter because, of course, she's she's this big symbol now in the yeah. world. So everything she does is going to be under a microscope. I think maybe he felt, and if he didn't, he should have uh, a little guilt about her, too, because he also thrust her into the public eye. True. And then put her in this very, very precarious situation of being the other woman. Yeah. And he's like, I hate to make you famous and then destroy you. You know, that's pretty mm-hmm. fucked up. That's true. I, so I hope he at least had felt some guilt about that. Right, or even had a conception of how that might be affecting her. But I I get the impression that that was included in the kind of damage control he was trying to do. Mm, Okay, that's good. I mean, because he's a feminist, so. Right. You know, that's that's something. 
But yeah, so so he's doing all his damage control, and he asked Dorothy to go with them on an Arctic trip the next summer. Mm-hmm. And she was pissed about this yeah. because she knows the only reason he's asking her to go is because she's going to, to fucking cover their ass, basically. Yeah. She's just there to make it look like a totally cool kosher trip between yep, friends. Yep, yep, Uh She wrote in her diary, I don't want to go. Yet if I refuse, it's given up and blamed on my temper. Yeah. And Sally writes about how hard it must have been for Dorothy to accept that her friend and her husband had fallen in love with each other. And Dorothy didn't blame them, but she did have to deal with the fallout that her husband had chosen another woman. Sally writes of her grandmother, Dorothy must have wanted to tell the world, I also love and have been loved too. Yeah, I think she just thought, is like, why, why is everyone so hung up on what George and Amelia are doing? Like... I don't know. It's just that's that objectification. I'm not yeah. just I'm not just the wife, noun, object, thing in the house, mm-hmm. right? Like I'm a person who knows how to love, who knows what love feels like, who wants that, who mm-hmm. it's the driving factor of my whole life. Yeah, and it just can't be. Yeah, and it's not that he's cheating on me because I'm not desirable. Right. Uh, people desire me. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So between this and the loss of her affair with GW and her brothers illness, Dorothy's kind of depressed. Um, there's even some unsubtle hints in her diary that she was considering suicide. And GW kept showing up. He is like a friend of the family as things went back then. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so she's still bumping into him and she's finding that kind of hard too, of course. She wrote, why should one put oneself in a position of caring so much? Why be so deeply hurt by another? A farewell, a gesture, or worse, a forgotten gesture, a careless word or phrase from one you adore, oh, can hurt, hurt so acutely. Lordy, I'm a fool. Damn, that My, is so that real. Is so evocative. I mean, just it's just so real to be like when you loved someone and you were close to them, and then they're not close to you in that way, yeah. and you don't have that permission that you used to have. Yeah, and you see them do something. That used to be so meaningful. Ugh. Really, it's very heartbreaking. Yeah. Just yeah. very, just a good writer, too, of all the she's things she's good at everything. Brilliant. But I really like that made me like tear up a little bit to uh-huh. think about something as simple as that. Just he said goodbye in a different way and it, it fucking bummed me out all day. Yep. Yep. So we're going to go get a tissue. <laughs> Um, dry things up around here and we will be right back after this little break I'm Katia Adler host of The Global Story over the last 25 years I've covered conflicts in the Middle East political and economic crises in Europe drug cartels in Mexico now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening why and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release Presented by Verizon, coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more.
Hi, I'm Cindy Crawford, and I'm the founder of Meaningful Beauty. Well, I don't know about you, but like, I never liked being told, oh, wow, you look so good for your age. Like, why even bother saying that? Why don't you just say you look great at any age, every age? That's what Meaningful Beauty is all about. We create products that make you feel confident in your skin at the age you are now. Meaningful Beauty. Beautiful skin at every age. Learn more at MeaningfulBeauty.com. There's a lot happening these days, but I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the seven most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about seven minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. It's spring and with the weather changing and so many great things coming up like Mother's Day and the wind down tour, I definitely need a fresh spring wardrobe for every occasion. This spring, I'm looking for that perfect flowy spring dress for Mother's Day, as well as replacing my everyday basics. That's what I love about JCPenney. They have so many stylish and comfortable options that I always find just what I'm looking for there. Spring is a feel-good season and comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. The fashion at JCPenney is the same way. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with styles that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes, and Stafford and Mutual Weave for him, style and comfort for all, even big and tall, plus even more for the whole family like Levi's and Exertion. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count. And welcome back. Amelia had just completed another record flight from California to New York. Transcontinental. Ow! And, of course, there's tension between Dorothy and Amelia. Right. And that had only grown with time. sure, sure. Um, But Dorothy still held Amelia in really high regard, really respected her, and was grateful for the barriers she was breaking for women. So she, you know, she was like, respect, but... Get out of my house. Yeah. <laughs> um, she and George went to New Haven to meet Amelia for a dinner at a Yale club where GW came to join them. Oh. And who was with GW? Darcy Kellogg. <laughs> Darcy Kellogg. And so poor Dorothy is stuck at this table with these two happy couples. Yeah. And one of them is this guy she still, I mean, has... At least a soft spot for, if not active feelings. And so she just could not take it. She was disgusted. I mean, literally nauseated. Yeah. By having to pretend to be Mrs. Putnam in front of everyone, knowing that that was bullshit. Yeah, she like literally got sick and had to get up and leave the table. In the morning, George came to her bedside and they both talked and they both cried at having been, you know, just antagonistic to each other for so long. She wrote, I guess we're all wrong, both of us, and we're messing up our two lives pretty thoroughly. And in the coming weeks, George tried desperately to make things right. Sally writes that there's no question that he loved her still, and he really wanted to win her back. He started to break off some of his dates with Amelia, first just a few, and eventually Dorothy wrote that he broke off all their dates altogether. She wrote, 
I'm trying, rather stupidly I feel, to settle down to the humdrum existence of middle-aged women. Men at this stage just begin to have their fling. Mm, makes me think of Steve Martin and the dating game <laughs> episode when yeah. he was like, you know, I'm 67. I've had a career. I've done it all. So now I'm happy to settle down and be a dad to a baby. <laughs> and I was like, lucky you, Steve. <laughs> I think that's exactly how you I said think it. That is what I said, <laughs> actually. But yes. Like, okay. Well, some of us have to do all of that all at the same time. <laughs> yeah. But everything George was doing, it wasn't enough for Dorothy. He obviously couldn't fully stay away from Amelia. They had so much to deal with for work. And besides, Dorothy just didn't really see any possible way to repair things at this point. She'd been wistfully dreaming of something else for just far too long. So now it's 1928, and an old friend popped up. After a two-year stint in the Navy, Frank Upton. And he immediately starts making moves on Dorothy. Oh, Frank. This guy's a war hero? He dove from a destroyer into burning wreckage to rescue sailors after their ship had exploded. Wow. I mean, it's pretty... That's cool. Cool story. Tom Cruise-level action right Mm -hmm. there. Sally calls him intensely attractive. Oh, Frank. As well. Dorothy seems, though, to think he was just pretty okay. (laughs) (laughs) She wrote... If he had better teeth, he'd be a very stunning man. Very much a mere male, though. Ouch. (laughs) Mere male. Mere male. You're just a mere male. (laughs) Not like the gods I've been seeing. I know, like GW. Uh Uh-huh. That barbarian god. I mean, and and George is something of a titan himself, so. Sure. I mean, yeah, these are some big shoes to fill. Uh Uh-huh. But then on November 23rd, 1928, Amelia announced that she'd broken her engagement to Sam Chapman. Oh, so that's not good news for old George and Dorothy. Dorothy's journals had already started to hint that her opinion of Amelia was deteriorating at this point. But now her frustrations were really becoming clear. Dorothy's brother had recently passed away and she wrote in her diary... Amelia has never once written me about my brother's death. She spent the weekend here and not mentioned it. Nor has she spoken of my Christmas gift to her. Nor did she even speak to the three servants in the house, although she spent 12 solid weeks living here last summer. Bad manners, yet she certainly manages herself wonderfully, says GP. (laughs) (laughs) So she's like... Oh, she's so pissed. She's so mad. She's like, this bitch couldn't even talk to the help. I mean... That is rude, though. It's too good. Yeah, absolutely, that's rude. That is rude. Meanwhile, George and Amelia are still going around the country to various conventions and society meetings and stuff for this publicity tour. And Dorothy notes how absurd it is that he tries to tell her who she's allowed to hang out with. Wow. And if Dorothy ever made a comment about Amelia to George... George would apparently go off and tell Amelia about it immediately, which George snitches get stitches now. (laughs) And he'd tell Amelia, make sure you write to Dorothy about her brother. Make sure you mention the Christmas gifts and shit. So, I mean, making Dorothy look petty, first of all, in my opinion, Dorothy called her a brainless puppet and said, Lord, how she must loathe it if she stops to think. (laughs) (laughs) Boy, that girl must really hate using her brain. (laughs) Now, you can tell it's starting to weigh on Dorothy. In January of 1929, she wrote, 
I'm becoming a shrew, a nag, a scene maker. I, who loathe all three. Would to God I could suddenly become a neuter, sexless, brainless, and like millions of others just occupy myself with clubs, politics, etc. And George is dictating all her behaviors to her. Don't see this person. Don't give money to that person. Write to this person. Don't write to that person. It just being a real tool, basically. So he's dictating to Dorothy and Amelia. More or less, yeah. You know, mm-hmm. you need to behave. I need to put you in this box and Amelia in that box. And I'm going to arrange these boxes in such a way mm-hmm. that everything's going to be hunky-dory mm-hmm. and we can all get what we want, which, of course, means I get what I want <laughs> and right. you all uh, learn what you want from me. <laughs> yeah, which, I mean, you're you're kind of right, too, because he's forgetting whoever he's putting in those boxes have their own ideas right. about how things should be. And he's not really taking that into consideration. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just, I mean, he, again, like, maybe he sees this sort of world that Dorothy is more expected to be in as perfectly fine. Why wouldn't she love that? She gets to travel whenever she wants. Sure. she's She loves the kids. She loves the house. She's got the money. Come on. Mm-hmm. That's true. And he's probably like, well, I'm a feminist. Like, I get it. Yeah, we're, yeah, we're cool. Yeah. But yeah. it's like, that's sort of the thing, though, is when you get to a point where somebody has decided you've got enough liberty yeah, right. and then you're kind of like, what if I don't? And they're like, well, what are you bitching about? You had more than you used to. You <laughs> yeah. know, and it's sort of like, well, yeah. how do you get to decide how much liberty I get to enjoy? Right. So that would be frustrating anyway. Even if you were happy with the way it was, you'd just be like, right. no, I want to just challenge you just to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's just me. <laughs> well, fortunately... Dorothy at least has this other guy on the side now. Right, true. Frank Upton. Frank Upton. She's got some diary entries about Frank Upton, and guess what special symbol starts popping up again? Uh Uh-oh, the spirally snake with the big dick. (laughs) (laughs) Something, I don't remember what we said. Right, (laughs) the bone. The bone with the the snake dick. Yeah. (laughs) I don't know if that that is snake dick. I can't remember everything that we said. Something like that. Yeah, that's that one. That symbol. <laughs> it's, it's, it's back up. Anyway, so I, they're doing it is the thing. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's doing it with Frank on the side. But this affair was very, very different from the one with GW because Frank was very domineering personality, pretty aggressive and very insistent and he joked about their differences. He was like, you're smarter than me. They both know it. <laughs> they both knew, it. <laughs> they yeah. both knew that. Um, he was kind of in awe of her social status and all her world travels and stuff. And she liked his untamed, wild nature. And at times, his domineering personality frightened her, which is a red flag. Uh, and he was pressuring her a lot into a permanent relationship. He was like, leave him and come on and marry me. So George and Dorothy kept blaming each other for their marriage troubles. Yeah. And things just got worse between them. She wrote, he wants this. I demand that. Probably each of us is 99% unfair to the other. And I hate it all. She is just really lost and confused. She kept asking what life was all about, whether she was just resenting getting older and things changing, or if she was longing for change and trying to make it happen for herself deliberately. Yeah. And she's also just getting more and more frustrated with George. You know, they'd be talking and she wouldn't be able to help but to let out a sharp quip about Amelia. Mm. And then he'd get defensive. That would set them off. and They'd fight and fight. 
And at some point, Dorothy was certain that he was reading her diary. She said, he must have done so to say the things he did this morning. Just so rude. So she's like, he know, he know, he, I never said that to him. Oh, yeah. He was like, oh, man, my back is stiff today. It feels like a spirally snake with a bone. (laughs) (laughs) And she's like, how would he know about the snake bone? Hmm. The snake bone is my personal design. (laughs) But look, Dorothy and Amelia did continue their friendship to some degree. Maybe this was because... They each had such unique experiences that it was hard to find people who could relate, you know, but it was strained, whatever it was. They still totally respected each other for the women they were, despite the conflict over the man that was between them. Amelia had been appointed assistant to the general traffic manager of the Transcontinental Air Transport. That's such a long, (laughs) what a mouthful. I'm the assistant to the general traffic manager of the Transcontinental Air Transport. No, you're the assistant general traffic manager of the (laughs) assistant to the general traffic, et cetera, et cetera. You guys know the reference. You know the thing. They were hoping that attaching her image would get more people flying, specifically women flying. Yeah. Um, and since Dorothy had been fascinated by planes ever since she was a child, you know, she loved the Wright brothers, um, Amelia chose her to be the first woman to fly a round trip from coast to coast in a commercial airplane. Awesome. And of course, after this flight, big deal, press tour ensues. They love a press tour <laughs> after they do anything. And Dorothy, George, and Amelia were once again whisked away on a PR event, which was going to involve Amelia doing a deep-sea dive off the coast of Rhode Island on Block Island. The Block Island Historical Society says Amelia became the first woman to exit from a submerged submarine. Mm -hmm. So the submarine goes down underwater. She gets in the little airlock with the diver suit on, the old-fashioned classic diver suit with the the tube coming out the top and little cage door on front. Aesthetic. Awesome. Uh, The OG, Mm -hmm. right? So she she gets out... um, on her first attempt, the suit leaked, and she had to come back up. But on the second attempt, she walked on the bottom of the ocean at a depth of 25 feet, Ooh. something no woman had ever done before. At least no woman had ever exited a submarine underwater to do that. Oh, okay. Dorothy actually mentions that she and her son David had done a dive in the exact same equipment in the Galapagos four years earlier. <laughs> so... <laughs> She's like, maybe I didn't do a little press tour about it, but yeah, I did it. I didn't step out of a submarine to do it. I jumped off a boat to do it or however she did, you know. But still, still a big deal. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, there was a newspaper article that came out after the first faulty attempt where her suit leaked and said that Amelia backed out because she had a lack of nerve. And Dorothy came out and was like, Mm -hmm. that is not what happened. There you go. And she got real defensive about her friend who, you know, obviously there was a reason. And then she did it the second day. After the dive, Amelia, Dorothy, and a couple of guys that were there on the same expedition all did the exit of the submarine underwater and dived up to the surface. They were the only two women in the world to have done this. And once again, Dorothy, the second woman ever to have accomplished this feat, Uh, just like when she was the second woman ever to vote in Oregon. Mm -hmm. But Dorothy had made some clever quips about the trip. And George was like, hey, that's pretty good. I'm going to go to the press. Hey, press, uh, guess what Amelia Earhart said? (gasps) Something real clever. And totally stole her shit. Oh, hell no. Yeah. You might be fucking my friend. (laughs) 
we can talk about that, but you want to steal my jokes? Oh, hell no. Uh-uh. We have a problem. Right. <laughs> and of course, Dorothy was not the type to go to the press and make clever quips or anything sure. like that. But George, at least if he was, could have been like, hey, my wife said this funny thing instead of Amelia. But, you know, he's trying to build up her image. Well, yeah. And he's like, if Amelia says it, then it'll be a headline. Right. If you say it, nobody cares, darling. Rude. Very rude. So, yeah, this PR machine was continuing to drive George and Amelia. And Dorothy was getting sick of all this attention. Yeah. She never wanted this fame that George was looking for. So after all this attention from the flight and the dive, she was more determined than ever to cut him loose. She wrote, the end is inevitable. So she's like straight up Thanos feelings. (laughs) (laughs) But the big risk was how destructive the separation would be. And she was worried that he'd been reading her diaries to get evidence in their eventual divorce suit. So her references to both Frank and GW, who's still a dear friend in her life, became more cryptic in her diaries going forward. Right. And Frank had said, I want to devote the rest of my life to repaying your great generosity and trying to be worthy of your love and tied it into an ultimatum, which actually flattered her and pushed her harder to kind of make this divorce happen. Yeah. Frank's really chomping at the bit here to get married, so. Right, right. What am I, what, what and I mean, he, yeah, he basically said, like, if you don't, I, I got to go. And look, in terms of public image, most people were on Dorothy's side. I mean, you know, the rumors are totally out there. They're in the press at this point that George and Amelia are having a fling. And they saw Dorothy as being this, you know, humiliated wife. George and Amelia's obvious affair was something that she had to deal with, and she didn't want to give that up. Having the press and the and the general public on her side was something that she was like, I need that for this divorce. Mm. George kind of has all the power here, so I need the rep. Mm-hmm. So she's like, hey, Frank, why don't you uh, take a little trip, <laughs> get out of town? Because uh-huh. if people see me and Frank, they're going to be like, oh, this is just two people cheating on each other. Oh. But if they see George and Amelia and then me all alone, I'm the wounded wife. You know, so that that was a little more sympathetic for her. So she told Frank to take a hike. (laughs) I I love that Dorothy's solution to any problem is either me (laughs) or you is taking a trip. (laughs) I thought long and hard about this, and I think I've got a solution. But separating from George, even with the public sort of perception on her side, still wasn't going to be easy. These rumors about George and Amelia were going to give her a good excuse to act, but... Divorce was still considered really scandalous in 1929, especially for a couple as famous and rich as they were, like the Putnam divorce. You know, that's going to be a national headline scandal. So she decided for a Reno divorce, which means we're going to take a quick fling with history. Well, who knew? So Nevada achieved statehood. In 1864. And their residency requirement to be a citizen was only six months. So residents could file a lawsuit, including a divorce suit, in Nevada court. So after 1900, this became like a hit with divorce seekers everywhere. (laughs) Like, Uh, (laughs) if you want a divorce, you come to Nevada. It was like a big business. All you have to do is hang out here for six months. 
You're good to go. And get a lawyer and you're good to go. Um, in fact, got so popular that in 1913, progressive reformers and religious groups and women's organizations pressured the state into extending the residency requirement to a year. Yeah, they were like, hey, uh, it's way too easy to get a divorce here. And that's not really working out well for a lot of people. And they're like, uh, yeah, it's working out great for us. That's kind of the whole point. <laughs> divorce business is a booming. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and they were not wrong because as soon as they changed the residency requirement, the divorce trade crumbled. Oof. And business owners who'd been profiting from the influx of divorces were <laughs> up in arms. I mean, imagine you've just got like a little mom and pop restaurant right. and you're like, the tourism trade here, everybody who comes to visit stays here for six months. Like, that's, <laughs> that's pretty good business. I know, right? And then, you know, that all goes away. If it's a full year, like nobody's going to do it. They're just going to get divorced in their home state. Yeah. So two years later, the requirement went back to six months. <laughs> they were like, like well, sorry. just kidding. Strike that. Reverse it. <laughs> and after World War I, there was what renodivorcehistory.org. <laughs> <laughs> There's a whole website. <laughs> it's actually fascinating. There's a like bunch I'm, of I great mean, info sounds, on there. It's a very interesting thing to yeah. have to be like a feather in your cap <laughs> of Nevada, <laughs> the divorce capital of the country. Anyway, they uh, after World War One, there was what RenoDivorceHistory.org calls a divorce trade war between Nevada, Idaho, and Arkansas. Yeah. So in 1927, the state legislature reduced the residency requirement to three months. Oh, my God. <laughs> so they were like, literally, dip your toe in Reno and you can get a divorce. <laughs> And when challenged, the Supreme Court upheld the law. Yeah. <laughs> so it was yeah. like, whatever. Well, I'll tell you, it wasn't even just Nevada, Idaho, and Arkansas. France and Mexico were also competing for divorcing couples. Wow. This was like a whole trade industry that people were trying to make a lot of money off of. They were <laughs> like, you know what? Everybody loves getting a divorce. <laughs> They're like, the wedding industry is massively profitable. Half of those customers are going to need another thing very, you know, within five years. And I think we can provide it to them. And France, Mexico and Nevada, Idaho and Arkansas all competing for this. And Nevada definitely was like, fuck it. Three months. You're an you're an official Nevadan. That's it. I, that's all I need. My bar is very low. Uh, you know, the only requirement was during the period of three months that you were there, you could not leave the state for more than 24 hours. And a resident of Nevada had to be a witness to testify that they had seen you in person each day. So, yeah. you know, yeah, they had to have a good Nevada friend. <laughs> right. Or, you know, just stay there, which I mean, you know, I frequently don't leave the state for three months at a time. <laughs> it's not that hard. Right. And for someone like Dorothy Putnam, this was a cakewalk. I mean, mm. hopping on a train heading out to Nevada for three months, not a big deal. She was frequently out of town for that long. So she leased a house in Reno, which at the time it was a small remote town. Mm -hmm. And she ordered her train tickets to head out there. Before she left, it was going to be George's 42nd birthday. <coughs> now, George knew what was happening. This wasn't like she was sneaking away to file a divorce. They had made this decision. And she decided to arrange for him to be on a camping trip with their son David to avoid a difficult <laughs> goodbye when she left. Before he left, they took a long walk together in the garden. And they both were really despondent. They cried. Um, they had a really 
you know, sad conversation. She wrote, It is like death. It is utterly sad and wretched. And if we were quarreling heartily, it might be easier, but this solemnness is too sad. We're both sunk. And yet I've not the slightest feeling of response to him, and I haven't had for years. I can't be his wire. God help me. That's just another really sad moment, you know, of people separating. Yeah. Kind of like when she and GW broke up. She's like, this would be so much easier if it was just like, fuck you, I'm out of here, you're an asshole. But, you know, when they do sit down and talk to each other, I think they kind of start to see what they had and it gets a lot harder. Mm -hmm. So she left for Nevada shortly after and brought their son June with them. GW had sent her yellow roses, which she held close to her the entire trip. She stepped off the train with them in Reno days later. She wrote about how she just couldn't believe that this was happening. And she said the flowers helped her feel not so alone and isolated. And George kept writing urgent letters to her, relentlessly trying to stop the divorce. Yeah. Um, He said he had items that could prevent the divorce in any court, which she presumed to be like affectionate telegrams between her and GW, which the dirty sneak, as she called him, stole from her personal stuff. She didn't understand why he'd use evidence which should make him want to divorce her (laughs) as a means to stop the divorce. Right. Which is true because it'd be like proof of adultery is the way to get a divorce. Yeah. So it's like, judge, judge, look, my wife's been cheating on me. Make her stay with me. (laughs) Right. And the other thing is George was also kind of nervous for Dorothy. She was obviously independently wealthy. And then whatever she would get out of the divorce would probably be pretty decent, too. And he was kind of worried that some guy was going to come up and take advantage of her, her pretty charitable nature, which Mm. she did have. And he said, all right, I am not going to agree to a divorce until you establish an unbreakable trust fund for the boys. She agreed. She was like, you know what? That's not a bad idea. So she bought 2,000 shares in trust for her sons. In September... Of 1929. Oops. Yeah. If we remember our history, investing a shit ton of money into into trusts in 1929 is not, didn't turn out to be the best choice. Who could have known? But a month later, that stock wasn't doing so hot, right? Not really. In late October, she was writing how nervous she and George and Frank all were about their stock holdings. I mean, fortunately, they were secure enough to hold on to their real estate and other assets. So they weren't like plunged into poverty like many people were at that time. But they lost a lot of money on paper. Yeah. But even after agreeing to a split custody, right, Mm -hmm. even after setting up a cash arrangement for Dorothy, however much she was going to get in the divorce, and settling the expenses for the boys, George was going to pay all of David's expenses and half of June's. So all Dorothy was on the hook for was half of one of their kids' expenses. But even after all these agreements, George was still not letting go. He wrote daily affectionate letters without Amelia knowing to Dorothy. And Dorothy felt like George was suddenly realizing what it meant to not have an anchor, as she called it, someone in charge of the home, responsible for the atmosphere. He was finally seeing all that she'd been to him as a wife. And this made things even harder for Dorothy, who, again, just wished they could just be fighting. (laughs) 
She asked why two intelligent adults couldn't just get along Mm -hmm. after all the years they'd spent together. Yeah. On top of that, she was still very uncertain about marrying Frank. She hadn't really officially agreed to it yet. She It was kind of understood, mm-hmm. but it wasn't anything she'd said yes to. And in being separated from him, their differences were becoming more clear and intense. She wrote, in three years, I shall be dead. Suicide or death or divorced again. Death, I hope. Oh, my God. God, right? I mean, she Yikes. is feeling it. Mm-hmm. But... She couldn't really commit to that because she was so worried about her son, June, Mm -hmm. leaving him without her. On the night before her divorce, she had hoped to be filled with relief and probably a little bit of celebration. But all she could think of were the good times. The hike up Mount Whitney, the house in Bend, the new mansion and their first garden together. 18 years of marriage now felt like something wonderful that was coming to an end. Her final entry as a married woman was one word, misery. But she knew she needed to be free to find herself and truly feel alive. Yeah. Clearly, she's very depressed. Oh, yeah. And she's like, something's got to give. Right. Which is so, so real. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I'm, I'm glad we're doing this story because it feels like we haven't really done um, a sad divorce <laughs> right, yet. Right, right. Which there's a lot of them where people just realize, you know, we're just not right together. But it makes me really heartbroken that we're not right together. I wish I wish so much that it was different. It's not that I hate you. We just make we just make each other miserable with with small things. And I don't know, just that feeling of like just wishing you could be different and make it all go back to what it used to be and and all that kind of thing. I mean, I'm feeling badly for her because obviously she's in a dark place in her mind. Yeah. It could be too. I always I try to remember when something is based on diaries that of course when you write in your diary sometimes you're in a heightened emotional state sure, and you sure. like over exaggerate about how you're feeling. You know what I mean? So yeah. you might be like, "God, ah, I, I wish I was dead." You know what I mean? But you're right. like, "I don't really wish that. I just at that moment it was the only way to express how I was feeling." You know, so yeah. just keeping that in mind. Think about this time too and and what she needs to do to distract herself mm-hmm. because I think you sit in your feelings a lot longer in yeah. this era. Yeah. I mean, you know, they didn't have Hulu. <laughs> um, and <laughs> and they're not getting notifications every 30 seconds to be like, no, think of this now. No, think of that now. You know, True, you're yeah. really just kind of sitting with your feelings for long periods of time. But I, I, I agree. I mean, I think looking at this different kind of separation, I mean, usually it's like, yeah, well, you, you cut my dick off. Of course we're going to get a divorce. <laughs> but this is like, <laughs> you know, these two people who just really couldn't make it work. And it's like, I, I imagine that a divorce like this is very similar to a breakup that you had already agreed wasn't going to happen. Right. Mm-hmm. Like uh, a, a breakup where two people just don't, it's just not there anymore mm-hmm. is very sad and difficult, even for the people who want that breakup, it still hurts, mm-hmm. right? But when you've already said, no matter what, we have decided we're going to spend the rest of our lives together, and then it happens, mm. that's just even more shocking and, and upsetting, I would think. On December 19th, 1929, their divorce was final. And she wrote, How scared and empty I feel. Life is an illusion. We get nothing that we hope to get. Or if we get it, we never keep it. 
no love lasts, and that is what we are wanting always. Not only to get it, but to keep it. There may be a perfect time, a perfect relation, but just as we grasped it, realize it, it begins to change. Does it always fade and change? I'm afraid so. Yes. Damn, that is a heavy diary entry. Right? She's like, can I even, is there even any person out there who can keep me the rest of my life happy? And I mean, you know. Because again, the challenge with Dorothy is that she's not just looking for a very specific, unique love. She's looking for something that's going to exist in a world uh, that is very different from the reality that they live in. From a very different societal standard. She already wants a completely different world to exist in. Mm -hmm. And then she wants a love that supports that. Mm. And, I mean, finding those two things together uh, must have been such a challenge. It feels like GW was the closest she ever got. But, damn it, if they weren't 19 years apart, you know, I think that was really (laughs) the biggest thing there. It was a a timing issue. It's like, Mm -hmm. if I could find a GW my age... Uh, you know, over who's it. just like, yeah, fuck it. Let's go wherever you want to go. Let's do, let's do things. Let's, mm-hmm. let's, let's, let's do all the adventuring that George wanted to do together as mm-hmm. a thing that we share and not a thing that we're both doing next to each other. Mm. Now, of course, after the divorce, the papers wrote the story that George was finally freed up to marry his true love, Amelia Earhart. As Dorothy put it, George got his divorce in Reno today. Mm. So all of a sudden it's like, oh, good for George. He got a divorce. Once again, Dorothy's left like, oh, uh, hello, I'm a fucking human being with emotions. And this is actually for me. But whatever. I don't want to be in the paper anyway. (laughs) Right. So she decided she had to do something to make herself feel better. So she, uh, so she bought herself uh, a, a nice lunch, <laughs> and she took a book to the park. She laid out a blanket, and no, I'm just kidding. She took a cruise to Panama. <laughs> 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 and there she reunited with Frank Upton. And perhaps because of her confusion and her loneliness, maybe because of her public image, she found herself wanting marriage. And on January 12th, 1930, less than a month after her divorce was finalized, on the star deck of the SS El Salvador at sunset, she and Frank were married. You can't you can't marry the rebound. <laughs> Come on, Dorothy. <laughs> right. It's a rookie move. <laughs> right. <laughs> she and Frank moved to Florida. They bought 40 acres of land. But what went completely unknown until she gave her diaries to her granddaughter for this book was that Frank became violently abusive. Damn. And he was an alcoholic. He was entirely dependent on Dorothy's money. He beat her regularly, sometimes with a horse whip. Later in her diary wrote that her marriage to Frank was, quote, the most horrible and disillusioning experience of my life excruciating pain and horror. Oh, God. Which says it all again. Shit. She's got some words, I'll say. Yeah. She she really puts you there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And of course, she never reported the abuse to authorities um, because the result would basically be public disgrace. You know it. Never understand the argument that someone's just trying to get famous by 
yelling about some abuse. It's right. not a good fame if you get it. And usually you don't get it. Yeah. <laughs> so it's a very weird thing, motivation for someone to say. Anyway, don't come at me with your stories of people who do it because I don't care. <laughs> um, of course, <laughs> he threatened her constantly. She suggests rape. In her diary. Yeah, she says that, like, you know, Frank came home last night and I had to submit to him just to just to keep him calm or something like that. Like, it's very clear that she's like, I didn't want to have sex with him and I did. Right. You know, yeah. he threatened to kill her and himself. Very controlling tactic. Many yeah. people use. Obviously, to kill you is a horrible threat. But then a lot of people use I'll kill myself. Right. Her son, David, who is now six foot four. Hulking, fearless adventurer <laughs> came to visit, and he saw the state that she was in. Right. And whether David put the fear of God in Frank is not recorded in the diaries. But Sally recalls Dorothy telling her that David ran Frank out of town. <laughs> and so their marriage was over in 1933, thankfully. Yeah, thankfully. bye, Frank. Bye, Frank. Don't come back. <laughs> yeah, I love David kicking down the door and being like, the hell do you do to my mama? Right, I know, right? That woman <laughs> took me to the Galapagos, and I'm about to take <laughs> your ass to the Galapagos. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to feed you to a blue-footed booby. <laughs> so with joint custody... Dorothy and George were able to eventually have a stable relationship together, and she and Amelia became reacquainted after the birth of David's daughter, who would be, you know, their mutual grandchild. Also, George and Amelia did get married mm -hmm. in 1931, and Dorothy's Florida estate became the central place for the whole extended family to meet up. So while Dorothy had hated being George's subservient wife, she was now the powerful matriarch of the entire family. But in 1937, Amelia Earhart disappeared over the Pacific Ocean in an attempt to become the first female to complete a flight around the globe. She was declared dead in 1939. Mm -hmm. Of course, mysteries linger to this day. Much right. She's hanging out with Elvis <laughs> and Bigfoot right. and, uh, you know, still out there having a good time mm -hmm. uh, with the uh, with the Nordic aliens controlling right, right, the world. Right, 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 right. <laughs> Who knows? But in 1937, when she took off, this was the same year that Sally Putnam was born. Um, Dorothy would remarry two more times in her life. Once to Don Blanding, a poet and painter. Um, but he kind of sucked. Oh. He didn't like anything outdoorsy, which, I mean, Dorothy is Hello. queen of the outdoors. <laughs> yeah. Um, so she built him a studio for, you know, his paintings and yeah. stuff. But he's all butthurt because she was, as he put in a stinging letter to her, Queen Dorothy, and I am nothing but the queen's consort. What a little baby. <laughs> Sorry, I got mad. Uh, see it from his side. Um, he went on and on about basically feeling emasculated by her authority in the world. Right, right. Um, He's, I mean, this letter is very just, it wasn't like a breakup letter. It was just like a, I need to tell you how I'm feeling. Mm -hmm. And how I'm feeling is that you're Queen Dorothy, and mm -hmm. I'm just your consort, and I used to be a king. I've been... I've been King Don in the past, you know, um, and I'm trying really hard to be your consort. And it's just tough because, you know, you're you're such a strong, powerful, independent woman. And it doesn't make me feel very good. You know? <laughs> so. And instead of Dorothy realizing that that meant this ain't the man for me. Yeah. She was real Dorothy about it. Right. And she wrote back and assumed responsibility for his feelings. Oh, Dorothy. So. She would do that. She, you know, I know. Like, if she was alive today, she wouldn't have done that shit. Right. <laughs> but right. she was alive then, so she did. Yeah. 
Um, and so anyway, they didn't last, even though <laughs> yeah. she cl- she tried to absorb all that. She it was it never going to work. work. Yeah. yeah, thankfully, good. Yeah. But finally, she was pretty content when she married Lou Palmer in 1947 when she was 59. He was the manager of this orange grove she'd purchased in Florida. And she wrote, I should have married a farmer, lived on a big ranch and had six children. How different it all might be. This wedding seemed to really be the one. She and Lou, they really bonded. And he really was everything that she wanted. She finally felt like she found you know, her 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 life partner. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. Uh, tragically, though. Oh, man, I, I was know. afraid you were going to say that. Sorry, I have to say tragically. They were married for about four years, but in November of 1951, Lou had a fatal heart attack. Oh, man. Yeah, Dorothy found him when she came home, and she was, I mean, I don't even need to tell you, she was devastated. <sighs> That's sad. Yep. She didn't marry again after that. And as she grew older, she did kind of become ill. She suffered chronic pain, but she never lost her wonder for the natural world. She would write letters to her children about songbirds and hedgehogs that she watched at this cabin that she and Lou had built in in the Smoky Mountains while they were married. And she didn't lose her feisty spirit either. By the 80s, 1980s, she had a 24-hour nurse, and she was complaining all the time about too many caretakers in her diary, like, this person's showing up, and she would gossip about her various caretakers, and then they offered her surgery. They said, this will be good for you, and she wrote, surgery at 93? With three question marks. <laughs> no, definitely. No, period. <laughs> that was the... That was the diary entry. Oh, man. I love Dorothy. Right. Which I don't, I mean, that makes sense. 93 years old, surgery is very tough to undertake at any age. (laughs) I mean, this woman, and this is a woman who I think, look at all her adventuring, look at all she'd been through. She was never one to shy away from death, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But she's near the end of her life, and she remembered GW. And the time that he lay with her in the garden and sang the song Blue Skies. Lou was the partner she always needed, but GW knew her in a way that no one else did. She wrote on a scrap of paper a quote from William Wordsworth. Probably the best portion of a good man's life, his little, nameless, unremembered acts of kindness and love. Makes me think of the flowers Uh, he sent over the train. Yeah, and I think that was it, right? These little moments with GW. Mm were so much more important to her than these, you know, the house, you know, Rocknell, and the 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 honeymoon to Panama, you know, she's I, I could take a trip any fucking time I want. Mm-hmm. When are you gonna hold pet- my hand? Yeah, right. When are you gonna hold my hand in a meadow yeah. and sing me a song while we watch the birds? Mm. You know. Well, then, yeah, it makes perfect sense that she'd like a farmer and sure, yeah, big big, big ranch and. Yeah. Maybe that's something she was always looking for. Maybe Speculation Station. Mm-hmm. Maybe because she had such extravagance, she was like, yeah, I've got everything I could ever want in terms of what I can buy. There's something else that I need. Mm-hmm. And maybe she just needed to find that from, from someone. And, and George wasn't the guy for that. So it was when she settled down with the Orange Grove farmer mm-hmm. that she's like, no, damn, this is this is what I was looking for. Maybe that was the problem, was that they were both 
kind of too similar in a way. Like they both, yeah. Her and I mean, her and George Putnam, yeah. There, when they had a problem, their solution was an ex- kind of an extravagant solution. Mm-hmm. Like she's like, "I'll go on a trip." He's like, "I'll go on a trip," or "I'll try to f- perfectly arrange everyone's lives so it all works perfectly." Sure. And like GW and probably Lou were more like, "Well, hey, we we quarreled this morning, and here's." A little token that I'm sad. I'm sorry. I brought you an orange from Aww. the grove, or I brought you some flowers, or She's I just like, came up to you. I just sat next to you and put my hand in your arm and asked you how you were doing, and we talked about nothing. Right. She's like, that's better than the orange because I got a lot of oranges because I, mean, I own a big grove? orange grove. It's forty <laughs> acres. So he's like, yeah, I know. It's a fucking <laughs> bring gesture. Me, bring me. <laughs> have, have a nice gesture would be bring me a banana. You know. I knew you had to go somewhere to get it. And and he'd be like. Orange, you glad I didn't say banana? Oh, God. <laughs> She's like, okay, we're getting a divorce. I know. I, ha, let me look up a ticket to Reno really fast. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's wrap it up. Uh, well, on Mother's Day, May 9th, 1982, Dorothy passed away at 93 years old. Susan's father, Dorothy's son, David, told her leaving them on Mother's Day was just like mother. I guess she was just cool like that, yeah, you know. He's like obviously, give you some significance to remember me by. <laughs> he's like, it would. It's either that or Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she was not going to go out on an on your average day. She Normal. was not an average woman. If you get to pick the day you die, <laughs> I think if anybody could, it's Dorothy Putnam. <laughs> yes, I believe you. This girl, she was stellar. Yeah, she's a really interesting person. Right. I, I yeah. Like we said at the beginning, everybody always thought. Oh, Amelia Earhart comes in and steals away this man from this sad wife who gets left in the dust and we never heard from her again. And she busts out these diaries and she's like, no, if anything, she kind of compares. She kind of suggests that Dorothy, when Amelia came along, Dorothy sort of saw it as an opportunity. You know, it it certainly wasn't like, oh, great. Yes. Take my husband, please. (laughs) But there was an element of like, you know what? Maybe. Maybe this is a good reason to get out. Maybe this is my chance. Mm-hmm. You two go be happy together. I'm going to go be happy just not with you mm-hmm. and uh, and find something else. So it, it just was so different than what the stories were for so long. Yeah. And Sally Putnam Chapman, who wrote this book, mm-hmm. is still alive from what I can tell. She's 83 years old. And, uh, and this book came out in 97 and I'm just so glad that she did this because yeah. we would otherwise have no idea. It's kind of like Winston and Clementine yeah. Churchill, where yeah. it was like, finally, someone told Clementine's story. And it's right. really interesting. And yeah. that, like, wow, we just completely ignored this whole person who was doing shit and living life in the background. Yeah. So, yeah. I know it's a big one, but I hope you all enjoyed this story. Yeah. Uh, I thought it was so cool to research. She's so cool. She's so cool. (laughs) Dorothy's my new hero. I would totally want to be her friend. Oh, my God. If I was hanging out with Dorothy and Amelia. Uh, I did something right. (laughs) Oh, my God. The dopest. Speaking of time travel destinations, that would be a really cool one. 1927 with a little money Uh and the right clothes. You could go to some cool spots. (laughs) (laughs) Man, that would have been awesome. Well, thanks so much for listening, as always. And... Y'all know, reach out. Tell us what you thought. Share your, uh, um, 
I, I'm divorce stories. I don't know. Uh, share your stories about flying across the Pacific. <laughs> uh, share any story you want. Tell us your ridiculous romance already. Let's hear it. Right. And um, you can reach us, of course, at romance at iheartmedia.com. Yep. Or on Twitter and Instagram. I'm at Diana Might Boom. And I'm at Oh Great, it's Eli. And the show is at Ridic Romance. And uh, yeah, please just tell all your friends to listen. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we cannot wait to catch you at the next episode. Have a lovely, 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 lovely day. So long, friends, it's time to go. Thanks for listening to our show. Tell your friends, neighbors, uncles, and aunts to listen to our show, Ridiculous Romance. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. The wait is almost over. Get ready for the 2024 NFL season as the full schedule is announced. Every rivalry, every rematch, every rookie debut, every game revealed. The 2024 NFL schedule release presented by Verizon coming in May. Live on NFL Network, ESPN2, and streaming on NFL+. Terms and conditions apply to NFL+. Visit nfl.com slash schedule release to learn more. With every CBD product claiming to do something different, it's nearly impossible to decide what's best for you. Lazarus Naturals pioneered the farm-to-front-door model of transparency where they handle each step of the production process to ensure quality, potency, and consistency. Scannable labels allow you to see the test results of your hemp batch so you can be confident in the safety and quality. Visit LazarusNaturals.com today. Lazarus Naturals, committed to improving your life as well as the world around you. Not available in Idaho, Iowa, or South Dakota. This episode brought to you by 20th Century Studios' Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Director Wes Ball breathes new life into the epic franchise. As a ruthless king attempts to build his empire at the expense of the remaining human race, a young ape begins a journey to fight for a future for apes and humans alike. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Enter the kingdom in IMAX this Friday and theaters everywhere. Get tickets now. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without the essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. I mean, it provides great protection and it's really breathable so you don't get hot. That's a win-win. Columbia PFG has a lot of great gear. So before you head out on the water, head over to Columbia.com PFG to shop their performance fishing gear. 